is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I am Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today, we're going to talk about a book... What? ...that's within a book. <laughs> it's, it's theoretically only part one of a book, but it's so long and dense that it's almost exactly the same length as the next book that we're going to read. Yep. This is our background book which we mentioned at the beginning of the season we would be reading. We did not know exactly how we were going to break down our discussion of it, but both of us, as we started to look at and dig into what we originally planned to have for this month's book, Dark Matters by Simone Brown. Spoilers, that'll be next month's book. And both of us had been plugging our way along through this. We both realized that we just wanted to take a step back and talk about this book. And since this is our podcast, What's up? we can do that. Yeah. So here we are talking about Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, complete in one volume of which we have read. It used to be two books. Part one. Having hefted this in bed at night, I think <laughs> it might have been nice if it were still two books. <laughs> It's really difficult. <laughs> it has slammed it, me in the chest a couple times when I've dropped it, when I've gotten sleepy at night, and it hurt. It's 794 pages in softback. And we'll we'll show you, we'll, we'll put a picture in the show notes. When we say pages that are many pages, these are dense, densely typeset pages. And uh, happily, they're and also they're nicely, oversized. Yes, they are. They're trade paperback <laughs> sized. So this is this is a book. This is a book. It's actually literally two, two books. books that are in one book. And even within the two books, the first section is basically a book of its own. Yep. So this is a monster, but for good reason. It's very valuable. It's awesome. This is my favorite book we've read this year. By a lot. And I'm only, well, we've read part one and I've read a bit of part two and I'm at a page 179 out of those 700 some odd pages. So you can do the math. We've got a long way to go yet. So what is this book that it would be so incredibly long and dense? It is nothing less than a enormous treatment of what the printing press did in relation to every aspect of Western European culture. That is not an exaggeration. Religion, politics, personal life, public life, law, science, military. Literally, if it happened, it's in this book. The bibliography is so long that she didn't even include it <laughs> it's it's true which is wild it is a wild thing to do she included a selected bibliography that was still like more dozen or more pages long yeah the bibliographical index runs from page 709 to, to 767 and that's not even so this is comprehensive it's as comprehensive as it gets and so that means that there's a lot to discuss and she defends her claims sometimes over much <laughs> with great enthusiasm and footnotes. Yes. So you can argue with this, but you're going to have to bring sources. <laughs> a lot of sources. She's got you covered. 
It took 15 years to write this book, and I'm not surprised at all. No, not in the least. So when Chris and I write this for the internet, it's going to take us 15 years. (laughs) At least. Just so you know. This is the only appropriate word I can think of for this sort of treatment of anything is magisterial. It is that kind of of book. We're going to tackle this a little different structurally from some of our previous discussions for two reasons. The first is that we're only discussing a part of the book. She's laid out the structure of her argument in basics and outline, and then she's going to work through the rest of it. But we're not discussing the whole book this time, so we can't actually just summarize the entire book. But the second reason is this is influential enough and important enough that we actually want to start out with what we might call opening statements to give a summary of our takes on the book so far. And then we'll Mm -hmm. work from there out into some of the nuanced arguments and details she hits. And then in our next episode, we'll try to actually apply that. And I think our applications in our next episode will be more direct in many ways than we've been able to do with some of our other books, even yeah, because of how interestingly the analogies map to the advent of the internet era. So yeah, opening statements hit me, Stephen. The very beginning, she points out that when people talk about the print revolution, They often say things like, it would be very difficult to explain all of the things that the print revolution has done, so we're not going to (laughs) try. And she's like, this means that no one has really ever tried. They just do tiny bits in specific journal articles and things like this. Um, There's one other source that she cites a lot that seems to be doing something related, but not quite. But in general, she says, look... We have to collect all of these sources from all these different fields. This is an interdisciplinary text from the beginning. And we have to piece together the narrative because no one is really trying to do it because there is no history of printing. It's either the history of the book or the history of the the trade industries or all these different histories and interdisciplinary things. There's also a footnote that she said she tried to look at linguistics journals, but they were very complicated, <laughs> seemed to go far afield and didn't add much to the study. And I was like, yeah, that was one of my favorite footnotes ever in fair. any book. And I like linguistics, <laughs> but that was a great it's, call. It's really funny. It's a great footnote. So she's gone pretty far afield to try to gather bits to recreate this sort of historical narrative. So that's roughly the first 50 pages is like, why aren't we doing this? I'm going to do it now. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much the the focus of the first, first section. And then she moves into another section where she starts to lay out why this is a valuable thing to do. Instead of saying, here's the large section dedicated to the Reformation, which we'll get into later, she says, this affected this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And she has it all laid out nicely into categories such as uh, dissemination, standardization, reorganization, data collection, preservation, amplification and reinforcement from hearing to reading which is uh, the change in the cultural Mm -hmm. norms, and then the Republic of Letters. So within that, instead of going field by field, she went effect by effect. There are a couple big ideas she traces out here, and one of the most essential and critical that both Stephen and I observed is that she rebuts both the idea that what happened when print introduced was 
a total transformation in kind immediately from what had come before. She rejects that idea, and we'll trace this out in detail, and she rebuts it very thoroughly. But she also rebuts the idea that because there was enormous continuity with existing scribal culture, the print printing revolution wasn't really a revolution. It wasn't that big of a deal. Both of these ideas apparently were around and current as she was writing this. I've never heard of either of them. My best guess at this point is that this book basically she so thoroughly demolished them. them that nobody thinks that killed anymore. Killed those ideas. 50 years along, the argument of this book is just taken for granted by everybody everywhere because it's so exhaustive. But those yeah. two points were super interesting. She shows that there is enormous continuity, in especially the first half century after the advent of print, with scribal culture. And then she shows how the specific kinds of discontinuity, specifically around quantity and quality of reproduction, ended up meaning that there was a revolution in kind as well, just by dint of those. And we'll we'll dig into that via some quotes in a bit. One of the things that you can point to is that she in the introduction suggests that this book is in large part a response to Marshall McLuhan's first book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, mm-hmm. which is one that if you're a comm scholar, you may have read, but otherwise not. It's mostly his other works that are are still read. Uh, they were more about television and electronic culture, but Gutenberg Galaxy was about Gutenberg and about his effects or lack thereof. And so if you've read Gutenberg Galaxy, then you can start to get a sense of the types of arguments that she was contending with at the time. One of the things that is a particular focus for her is that scribal culture is hard to study. Right. You don't have a whole lot that you can work with. So she's done the hard work of finding whatever sources she could, both primary and secondary, to try to piece together some of the elements that show the both big transformation and subtle transformation in the ways that people do written work. She also spends a fair bit amount of time explaining the process of scribal culture for those who aren't aware of it, which I was not. And it's It's real interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently... People used to stand up in front of a bunch of scribes and read a text and the scribes would write it down as they were reading it. You can imagine that this would create errors. (laughs) Because so much scribal culture was oriented that way, one of the critical shifts she identifies that ends up being a shift in kind, even though it wasn't necessarily felt that way originally, was effectively perfect reproducibility. The fact that once you set a text, every copy you made of it from that press, modulo some degree of degradation in the quality of the woodcut over time or the quality of the blocks of metal that you had cut over time, you were basically going to reproduce many thousands of copies of the same text rather than many thousands at most, often tens or possibly hundreds of copies with many, many subtle, small differences. This 
apparently subtle change at first because, ah, well, we're still selling the same kinds of documents. We're still preparing them in many of the same ways for many of the same people. This ended up having a very significant impact on the kinds of things that would even be done with a text. She calls out, for example, this is from page 80, the development of the idea of textual errata, where you could actually look at a text and know, oh, when this went to print, it had these errors that were put in it. So I can generate an insert that will now get shipped out with the book. And as she notes, the very act of publishing errata demonstrated a new capacity to locate textual errors with precision and to transmit this information simultaneously to scattered readers. Yeah. Both of those were things that emerged out of the fact that you had standardized copies, standardized not just in the errors that existed in them, but also in things like page numbers that you could reference and specific locations and indexes. These kinds of things, she argues, and I, I think very persuasively, meant that even when you had this enormous continuity with the preceding culture, you ended up with a difference in kind effectively. She writes back on page 51, the absence of any apparent change in product was combined with a complete change in methods of production, giving rise to the paradoxical combination of seeming continuity with radical change. And that is, I think, a good summary of her argument of what actually happened, especially in the first century of print. As, as she says about scribes, the incapacity of any two scribes, let alone 1,000, to produce identical copies while taking dictation is overlooked in general. And this especially applies, she notes, to things like mathematical tables. So, quote, for scholars concerned with scientific change, what happened to numbers and equations is surely just as significant as what happened to either images or words, both of which were themselves transformed in this era. So, she notes that these kinds of things impacted not just words in a treatise like the one we're reading here, but across the board, the kinds of things that were even possible to do in mathematics and science were radically transformed, even though at first blush, you might have thought, oh, we had diagrams copied from manuscript to manuscript before. We had people making many copies via dictation, hundreds, sometimes thousands for distribution in libraries. A lot of the people who started early presses were people who had been doing that exact, quote, same work before. Sort of. Exactly. The differences in production mechanism, as she says there, the differences in availability of all of these mechanics transformed it ultimately in kind as well as in degree. And what's interesting is that she's not a technological determinist in that she points out that scribal culture had a rich culture of making emendations and making notes and commentary that would then get passed on with right. the manuscript. And then if they were good, they would be rewritten into the next version of the manuscript and stuff like that. And so much like the the Jewish holy texts have layers and layers of commentary and emendation and commentary on the commentary and emendation on the emendation, manuscripts in general used to be mm -hmm. like that. And then as soon as the print press came along, it knocked that whole tradition out of the realm of passing on in that way. Although, as she gets to in the Republic of Letters, it goes on in a different form, and that impulse continues, but not in the same technological state. Right. And so, she is clear-eyed that there are things that were lost along the way, while not being... I would wager, overly sentimental about <laughs> the good old days. So, I think it's 
it's important to note that she is not saying we good thing we got rid of those scribes you know that's so we're making some progress now it is a in a particular focus of hers that there are real people Mm -hmm. doing this stuff so i will bring up that point in the uh second episode that her emphasis on people implementing and changing materials Implementing and changing concepts, implementing and changing the ways that uh, texts are even organized is really important. This is not just a story about technology. It's about a story of how people capitalizing on their interior impulses are able to use technology to fit to those impulses. And she is particularly interested in how several abbots and monks with a... Uh, zeal for order (laughs) helped contribute to the development of the humble index. And you might say, why is the index important? And the answer is it developed botany and zoology, apparently. Right. She makes a fairly convincing argument that the development of the ability to categorize and distribute those categorizations rapidly meant that people could build on a work much faster Mm -hmm. and therefore have more work to then categorize. And therefore, you would create large taxonomies and then you've invented botany. I actually alluded to exactly this point in our discussion of Jurassic Park when I noted that one of the things Crichton gestures at is the way that science today, especially industrialized science, capitalizes on these shifts that now are taken for granted. They're so deeply embedded in our culture that you can easily find and access all the information you might want on a given subject, and you can then turn and industrialize for that. journal paywalls. Right. Journal paywall. Don't don't get me started. You want to hear me Hulk out. Hulk smash! I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You said you can get everything you want, and that is not true. Well, I mean, technically Even. it's true. It's just illegal. Well. <laughs> just saying. No comment. <laughs> she notes. Professional no professional comment. Professional no comment. That's right. She notes, though, and this is a point I particularly appreciated. This is from page 93, that the development of those things was not usually a case of... Merely the emergence of typographic culture, that is print culture, Mm. though it certainly required the emergence of typographic culture, but, and here I'm quoting, also is reflecting new opportunities among clergymen and clerks to realize old goals. In many cases, the typographic culture was not so much just providing here are new technologies and people did totally new things with them. Rather, it reconfigured the ways they could do the things they had already been doing Mm -hmm. and or had wanted to do, but had never been Mm -hmm. able to do because of the limitations Mm -hmm. of their existing technologies. While, as Stephen noted, losing some things along the way as well, because the new technologies no longer had the same affordances. Print has different affordances than scribal culture does. And that notion of affordances is one we've brought up on previous seasons of the show, especially talking about ideas around friction and how that can Mm -hmm. help or hinder the ways that your technologies get used here. She doesn't make a judgment call on the positive or negative aspect of it so much as simply call it out and make it explicit. Another thing that she doesn't really pass judgment on. And then another thing that she does, there's two intertwined aspects of printing that went on outside books 
So she makes a point to call out that there are tons of things that people were printing that we know from sources that they were printing, but we don't actually have copies of. So handbills and public notices and pamphlets and treatises and all the ephemera of public life that if you were alive in the 90s or before, you're very familiar with. <laughs> right. If you're on college campuses today, you're still familiar with right. ephemera floating around. Right. But she points out that to the extent that the public is invoked, not just the elites of the Western culture, which she rightfully admits that this 700-page book is mostly about. She has no problem saying that. She points out that for the cultural aspects, the things that were printed that we have no record of, the ephemera, were probably more important in transforming the psychological aspects right. of hearing to printing. And she points out that things like newspapers developed a possibility for people to get news literally day-to-day -day news right. without having to go and gossip outside the church doors, is what she says. And so, that she doesn't really make a distinction or judgment on, but then she does make an observation that I think is a subtle judgment. And on page 132, she says, by its very nature, a reading public was not only more dispersed, it was also more atomistic and individualistic mm -hmm. than a hearing one. And so... At the time that she's writing, which is the 60s and 70s, you might be able to say the words atomistic and individualistic and be sort of neutral about it, but now you really can't. So, I'm willing to say that there's a little bit of gap in the 50 years since this was written, um, and she may not be trying to make a judgment, but now she is accidentally making one. Um, and so, uh, I think that's an important distinction that the hearing culture for all of its communal involvement. She says you literally had to go stand in a group to hear someone talk if you wanted to hear something happen, whether right. it was a group of people or a crowd listening to a person on a stage podium or whatever. For all of its communal aspects, it also had limited ability to deliver information. And I don't remember uh, if it was in this book, or if it was something I was reading, but Daniel Defoe, who is famous for writing Robinson Crusoe, also wrote a fictional account of uh, a plague. And one of the things he notes is that he grew up in a plague and he was happy that there were no newspapers or other types of information dispersing content at the time because it made it easier to live in the plague. You did not have an accumulation of information adding extra stress to the difficulty of the plague. This experience may ring true to our listeners listening in the time of COVID-19. I was just going to, I was going to make that, uh, an Leave implicit. That implicit. Yeah. So I'm going to make so. that one super explicit for you. <laughs> you just don't love him. Anyway. So the argument I was making is that the nature of life the, the way that we process communal and individual activities was changed by reading. And as when she gets to the Republic of Letters bit, she shows that in some very positive ways this happened. Mm -hmm. But also there are some things 
I'm just being the downer this whole episode <laughs> that were lost in right. the transition from hearing to print culture. Although she's quick to point out that the scribes were in the middle there and it did not go straight from hearing to print. It was not a smash cut. Right. It was a long transition of some people could read and some people couldn't. Apparently, like if you could read, you could get paid to read something for someone. Makes sense. But who knew? I mean, it does. Like it's a skill. Like I got to go take this to a reader and then <laughs> let them tell me what's in it so there's that job doesn't exist anymore there's this sense that it was both longer and shorter than most people think because she really hones in on the first 50 years after gutenberg as the big shift she doesn't expand it out to like the 200 250 years that some people will although she does give a shout out to those people at the end of the chapter like jefferson and the french revolution stuff like that but she really hones in on 1450 to 1500 as like here is when the stuff was happening right here is when we were making the changes a couple other points I'll call out here, right, as we get to the close of this first episode, and then we'll pick up and talk about applications of some of these points in particular in the second episode. Yeah. One where she, again, makes something of a sly judgment, I think. From page 153, she notes... The advent of an industrial society is too often made responsible for conditions that were shaped by the momentum of an ongoing revolution in communications. She observes here and in this section in general about the impact of print on industrialization of art, the separation of certain fields that had historically been bound together into discrete mm -hmm. specialties mm -hmm. and so on. She makes it very clear clear here, and it's a relatively brief section compared to some of the others, but she notes here that it is easy to trace things to the Enlightenment or to the Industrial Revolution or, or points like this, which themselves were knock-on effects in very direct ways of the existence of print. They were inconceivable without print. And so, again, while that's become a commonplace, it's clear reading her footnotes that it wasn't a commonplace when she made the argument. And I think even today, yeah. as regards industrialization, most of the time when you hear people gesturing at an industrial society and a liberal society and looking at the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution as major bugbears, I've never heard someone go and trace that back to print and the ways that print had already transformed culture such that those things were po live possibilities in the first place. Now, she's, as you said earlier, not a determinist. I think there's a reason that she makes that claim and a reason that now people don't make that claim. And one of the reasons she makes that claim is because she thinks that print had been underdetermined. Mm -hmm. She felt that people were not giving print its due. And therefore, she was trying to say, like, no, everybody look over here. Right. And now I think in our culture, print is overdetermined in that everyone takes print entirely for granted. She made her case so thoroughly. Yeah, that people now have overdetermined the case and say, like, well, yeah, print. I mean, obviously, print was what started exactly. this all. But what really got <laughs> it going was... Right. And so I think this also has to do with the continuing influence I'll call it, of uh, Marxian thought implicitly and explicitly yeah. on the ways that we shape industry, labor, culture, and forward trajectory, whether or not you are a Marxist or not. If you think about 
technology and culture and economy as the driving forces of what we do here, you're roughly a Marxist. Right. You're using his categories. <laughs> right. Whether you agree with where he thought they would end up or not. Right. Right. I know that some people just broke out in hives. <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> That's kind of a wrap on our summary of this first part. We could literally spend hours. I have so many marks in my book noting really interesting things. There's a whole section about like military history. That's wild. The development of a bunch of legal concepts that really didn't exist or need to exist before the development of print. On page 59, she mentions that advertisement used to mean thing to tell you not to do something. And now it means thing to tell you to do something. Right. Like we could go on. Lots and lots of interesting changes here. We we can I can say even having read only part one, we commend this book to you. It's super interesting. Oh man. It's it's really interesting. I've learned a ton. Yeah. We will discuss much more about some applicability of some of these ideas, both points of continuity and points of stark difference, as well as some of the things she gestured to about what was then the coming digital revolution in our next episode. Yeah, and it's going to take a while to get through this book because she covers the Renaissance for 140 pages. She covers the Reformation for 150 pages. (laughs) We're going to read that one with great interest. Oh, yes. She covers science versus medievalism for 70-ish pages. Technical literature, which I will be reading with great enthusiasm. <laughs> That's literally for 55 his job. pages. Yep. Yep. I'm not sure Chris will be so excited about oh, that. I'll, I'll be excited. No, you're going to be more excited about the Copernican Revolution, which she talks about <laughs> yes. for 60 some odd pages. And and then uh, scientific publication for 50 more. So, yeah, it's just going to be a lot. Yeah. Really. And no promises on how we're going to tackle the rest of this. We may drop some mini episodes in the bonus feed. We may dedicate another long episode. I'm sure we will do a summation episode at the end, at the end of the book. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I will be shocked if we don't do an episode on the reformation and one on science. I I would be inclined to agree there. We may not do the technical literature bit. (laughs) Or we may, who knows? We'll see. Or we may, we may. So next month we actually will be reading Dark Matter by Simone Brown. And then that will be basically the end of the first half of the year. Mm-hmm. We usually take a break in the summer, but I, I don't know if we will this year. Yeah. It looks like we're not going to. We're doing this planning thing and we're enjoying it. Yeah, and it's going We're just kind of reading smoothly. books and talking about them, which is great. Yeah, so. it's it's neat. Like, we, we came up with a book club. After that, uh, the one we know for sure is that we will be uh, we will be doing the real world of technology, the real world of technology by Ursula Franklin, getting into the history of technology, sociology of technology. Much obliged again to Michael Sacasas for his recommendation. Yes. We, yes. We're going to use a lot of michael's recommendations for this season they're good recommendations we definitely are and then the month after that we'll be looking at technopoly by neil postman which i'm very excited about because postman is a fantastic writer but man he is a critic (laughs) to the core to the core the music for this episode was alpha orionis which is another name for the star betelgeuse which isn't exploding and i'm disappointed yeah that would be that would be pretty cool 
This was by Jeff Bass. We appreciate Jeff Bass letting us use it. Go check it out. Don't use it without permission. Uh, thanks again to our sponsors. We thank you so much. Uh, shout out to that one listener who told us that she's starting at season zero and working <laughs> forward. Why? Seriously, you're a brave <laughs> soul. We appreciate thank you. you. We are glad that you're that excited about us, but man, season zero is rough and season one is worse. (laughs) Technically, it's not good, but we do appreciate you very much. And thank you to everyone else. Uh, we had a little bit of listener feedback. That's a lie. And by a little bit, we had a lot I of mean, listener, a lot feedback. listener feedback from one particular listener who gave us uh, a blow by blow of each book. Thank you so much. That was really that was fantastic, productive, and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting things was the the question of uh, reproduction in the imagination of Kurzweil in the the book on the singularity. And yeah, I don't really know. Like reproduction in the neither future. Neither did Kurzweil. Yeah, well, neither do we really. <laughs> like it's an interesting problem. So uh, consider that as you're thinking back through that book, dear listener. If you would like to sponsor the show, we would think that was awesome. You can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Yeah. And if you want to be like our enthusiastic listener who sends us email, please do. We love it. I respond to all of the emails that we get. I read all of Stephen's responses to the emails that we get. (laughs) It's a contribution. (laughs) Um, You can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter at Winning Slowly. And uh, we still are on them. But that's all there is to say. We're still... (laughs) still there if you did want to do that thing where you sent us an email the address is hello at winning slowly.org that's right that's right until next time thanks for listening thanks for listening <laughs>